Uh, welcome to Sprogcast, episode one. We're excited about Sprogcast because we're hoping to uh, open the lid on loads of subjects related to pregnancy, birth and early parenthood. We've got a lot to say. We've got a lot to say and we're really excited to talk about it and hoping that whatever we do in the future, other people are going to get involved as well. Hello, my name's Mark Harris. My name's Karen Hall. Welcome to Sprogcast episode one. And over the next few months, we're going to kind of open the lid on pregnancy. Uh, dealing with issues related to the pregnancy period, uh, birth and early parenthood. So first, it might be nice for anybody listening out there to actually kind of meet us. So Mark, would you like to say a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Yeah, I would. Yeah, My name's Mark Harris and uh, I've been a midwife since 1994. I've got five biological children, six grandchildren. I know my contraception advice is probably rubbish. That's what people normally say. I'm a big chap. You know, when I started midwifery back in 1994, there were um, 61 male midwives out of 36,000. And as we currently speak, Karen, um, there's about 91. It's not changed much then. Well, it's not. It's not been a growth area. And I'm, you know, I'm big. I'm at least 20 odd stone. And, uh, you know, as the, uh, I usually say that when I walk in the room, the woman says, I called the midwife, not security. (laughs) And I go, I am am the midwife. And she goes, security? But over those years, Karen, I've done loads of different things. And at the moment, my passion is having observed the way men respond in the context of, of labour and birth. You know, I realise that they, they, they need support when it comes to being there for a woman, a woman giving birth. And my major attention at the moment is focused on supporting partners as they support the women they love through pregnancy and, and birth. That's me in a nutshell. I'm married for 21 years. Wife died seven years ago um, in a new relationship. We've adopted a little boy. Sounds like a busy life. Yeah, indeed. Karen, t- tell us a bit about you, will you? Okay, well, um, I'm a breastfeeding counsellor with NCT, though I will say here that the views expressed are not those of NCT. Um, I also work on as a parent supporter on Net Mums. The views I express here are not the views of Net Mums. And I work for myself and these are my views. As a doula, um, mostly doing postnatal support, just helping people out when they have um, newborn babies in their lives that bring all those lovely, interesting challenges that people didn't quite expect. And I've done one birth as a doula, which was really exciting. And I'd love to do some more. But fitting that in is quite the challenge. I live with my partner and our eight and a half year old going on 16 son and a cat. Was it a home birth you were a doula? No, it was in a hospital. Wow. There's always a challenge of the on-call period when you've got a family. Yes. And it was over Christmas. But happily, she decided to have the baby before Christmas. So it was fine. Oh, that's It's good to get to know you, Karen. I'm hoping over the next few weeks or so or, or months as we as we carry on that some of the people that listen will get in touch with us what, what do you think would be the best way for them to do that we've got a facebook page at facebook.com slash sprogcast have we yes <laughs> you sound surprised mark um yes we have and so that would be a good way to get in touch oh that's brilliant is, is that page do people have to can they just click on it do they do we have to add them can they add themselves it's a page rather than a group so i think that you just need to like it like our page uh, i'm guessing that these pages that we can put um uh, our handouts and our information sheets and stuff like that i think you can post comments on things that we post all right but it's it's certainly a good way to access us 
And uh, I'm sure that we're going to be responsive to some of the questions that come in. I know that we've already spoken about a program on risk as it relates to birth. One of the papers that you sent to me to look at in terms of current news was an American paper looking at the impact of evolution on all hormones that are released at birth. Should I just say what that paper was? Go on. It's called The Hormonal Physiology of Childbearing, Evidence and Implications for Women, Babies and Maternity Care by Sarah J. Buckley. It's brand new. That's as of January 2015. And it comes from Childbirth Connection, which is a program of national partnership for women and families in Washington, D.C. Yeah, very catchy title. (laughs) I I realise that a lot of the issues that the paper addresses are very interesting and have been around for, for a while. You know, those those things that we've known about the environments that enable a woman to lose herself to the birth hormones, you know, private, warm, intimate, you know, not engaging the neocortex, you know, the worst thing ever. You know, she's she's dipping into that part of the brain that releases the, the hormones that are rich for birth. And then someone says, have you considered syntometrin? And, and suddenly she's being asked questions causing you know the neocortex to be activated and she's out of the state that is optimum for birth so the study was was good and well worth a look i think it's fair to say some interesting stuff about prolactin and the evolutionary um development of prolactin i'll tell you what the other article you mentioned worth a look is this whole idea that a man being involved with his children is modern and new Yes, that was really interesting. That's the research from the University of Leeds History Department that debunks the popular belief that modern dads are more hands-on than previous generations. Yeah, a historian there looking at various sources, primary sources, that indicate that Victorian dads were very hands-on, that when they got into their houses after a hard day's work, they were involved with their children in a very physical and connected way, which is quite interesting, isn't it? When we think about modern dads being involved with their children, with the advent of handheld media devices I think we used to use them for making telephone calls tend to create a barrier between us Uh, you know I was sat in my front room the other day with my girlfriend and my son he was on his iPad she was on her netbook and I was flicking away on my Kindle this is research from the University of Leeds. I'm looking at the university website where it says research shows how the hands-on dad isn't a new phenomenon. And this is research by Dr. Laura King from the School of History. We'll put this on the Facebook page as well. So but why, why do we assume that fathers nowadays are doing something different? Let's just think about fathers in the birthroom. That, that's a fairly recent phenomenon. You know, certainly when I started as a midwife 20 odd years ago, men were more likely to be in the birth room. But when my dad was, I've got five sisters and three brothers. You know, my dad wasn't present for any of those. I think the advent of men being in the birth room has kind of shifted a a little bit. The other thing I would feel quite strongly about in our culture is that we don't really have any rites of passage for, for boys to men. You know, in my dad's time, it was short trousers to long trousers and probably going to work after you left school led to this transition where a boy became a man. Now, for a woman, it's physiologically inbuilt for them to transition and have rites of passage. You know, a girl becomes a woman, she menstruates and then and then then a woman gives birth and becomes a mother. You know, what do we have in our culture for men in terms of rites of passage in Western culture? What have we got? PlayStation? So becoming a father is is it. If, if a man gets a sense when his partner is pregnant that he is entering into fatherhood the day he realises she's pregnant. And that, that engagement, it, it demands that he prepares himself 
that he understands what's going on, that he can engage in a conversation with her about the questions that she's got rumbling along. You know, it's the start of becoming maybe a rite of passage where he transitions from boy, well, from man to father. So what I'm seeing is that that's being channeled into quite a strong focus on I want to bond with my baby and that means I want to feed my baby, not not just leave it all to her. And I know a lot of that is coming out from how can I support her? How can I make it easier for her? What practical fix is there for me to do? Yeah. Um, oh, I know I can give a bottle, which yeah. then can be quite undermining to the breastfeeding relationship. No, I get I get that, which really comes back to the project that sparked off us having this conversation, Karen. You know, I, I felt really strongly that, that if a man grasps and understands how breastfeeding works, well, primarily, if he understands that these breasts are not his, her breasts are for feeding, are for feeding children. You know, from an evolutionary mammalian point of view. And from a feminist perspective, they're hers and she gets to decide what happens with them. Totally. Having been very clear about that, moving on to understanding how breastfeeding works so that in the context of him having a rich understanding he can then kind of intuitively get a grip if you look at the breastfeeding statistics in our country i think it hasn't changed much over the last 20 years uh, and the last time i read them it's a huge quite a large number of women choose to initiate breastfeeding the national statistic is 76 percent. it was about 61 percent when i started so it's gone up a little bit, but we know why that is. That's because initiation can just mean the baby looking at the nipple and that gets counted as initiation. <laughs> and then in about two weeks or certainly six weeks, over half have changed their breastfeeding choices. Is that, is that right? By six weeks, 50% of those who started, roughly 50% have stopped. And a very sad statistic, 90% of those women who stopped will report that they would like to have continued for longer. A huge portion uh, make that choice within the first two to three weeks. Yes. When, when so-called professional input is at its peak, not only would men benefit from understanding the physiology of breastfeeding and how it works, a lot of my midwife colleagues could do with updating their understanding. You know, even, even to the point of realizing that the placental hormones are stopping prolactin working fully. And as the uh, placenta is birthed, it takes about 72 hours for prolactin to reach its peak through the nighttime hours. You know, and we wonder why this baby starts to want to feed through the night around about the third night. Well, it's not rocket science. If we were hunter-gatherers, nighttime would be the safest time to feed, wouldn't it, Karen? It would. So what do you think are the basic things that fathers need to know to be able to support their partners? First of all, I always place the whole discussion inside an evolutionary framework. This has been going on for at least 200,000 years and from a mammalian point of view, a lot longer. So breastfeeding works, and if it didn't, none of us would, would be here. The very broad sweeping things would be supply and demand. You know, I would, I would be very clear that there isn't any need for a routine. You know, the idea that the baby sets the pattern for uh, feeding. Right. And it's really useful at that point also to do something on brain development to help people understand that a newborn baby simply cannot manipulate you because they don't have any theory of mind. They have no concept that you want something different to them. All they have is need. 
Heidegger says, you know, language is the house of being wherein man dwells. So for any meaning making to take place, babies have to have acquired a certain level of language, which is totally ridiculous. So there's just a response to an innate desire to survive. You're not making a rod for your own back, as my mum used to say. <laughs> when, when you pick that baby up, when it's when it's crying, when you respond. See, the other thing is seeing videos of babies making feeding signals, you know, and understanding what a sign is that the baby wants to feed. You know, a more nuanced understanding is understanding that the baby's born with brown fat stores along the scapula. You know, I know there's lots of um, provisos to that, depending on length of labour and all that kind of stuff. But we know that the baby has that brown fat store. Why? Well, it's because in the first 72 hours, the percentile hormones are flushing out of the body and prolactin is coming to its peak. Those brown fat stores are used at that point. It's why babies lose weight in the first 10 days. Are they laying down these brown fat stores before the birth to keep them going during the colostrum period? Yeah. You know, you have a baby whose muscle tone is good, it's healthy in every other way, but is inclined to sleep early on, conserving energy, using the brown fat stores. And then suddenly around 72 hours, surprise, surprise, the baby wants to feed regularly through the night. It's no accident why it works that way. See, what we've got, though, is a medicalized culture inside hospitals where we're weighing babies. You know, one hospital I worked at that should remain nameless would weigh the baby again when a woman was discharged even if it was a six-hour discharge. That seems a little bit pointless. A total knee-jerk reaction to some adverse event, I'm sure, but totally pointless. When we talk about risk, it will be really interesting to come back to something about that risk-averse culture. So back to the whole breastfeeding thing and what men need to know, they need to understand that, that breastfeeding works, and if it didn't, we wouldn't be here, that, that breastfeeding is a sort of like a supply and demand deal. And as you quite eloquently said, this baby here doesn't have any potential to manipulate. OK, so we've got the evolutionary framework, the, the supply and demand basis. Yeah. Um, we've got the brown fat stores, which is a useful thing to reassure them in those first few days. Yeah, I think we've got stomach size. You know, I'll often show that picture yeah. of marble table tennis ball. And then I show my stomach, which is more like a basketball. But you know, <laughs> you know the pictures I mean, Karen. Um, I use actual marbles. Awesome. And you can get a kit in a bag, can't you? And then you get this thing in hospital that I think is really important for women and their partners to realise is that often, you know, this baby will be feeding or very, very frequently. And, uh, and then a well-meaning midwife will say, well, you really need to give that baby a bottle feed. Because, you know, they're not settling. Well, because your milk hasn't come in yet. And then the, the, a bottle is given. And, of course, the baby appears to be satiated for longer. Which just proves that apparently breastfeeding doesn't work. Or, or you get to see in the bay that you're in that other women are bottle feeding and the babies are sleeping for longer. And, of course, the baby will appear satiated because the stomach is overextended and the, sorry, the non-mother's milk will take longer to digest. Yes, a baby then sleeps deeper and it's the light sleep when their neurological development is really blossoming. Mm. So deep sleep isn't necessarily a good healthy thing to have. But mums are tired. Absolutely tired. And the hospital environment, certainly in those early hours, are not the best place to be gaining sleep. I was just thinking about other cultural rituals like doing the month and having someone come in and massage your feet every day and make you nice soup. Yeah. I, you know, there's so many things in our busy Western culture that hamper, if you like, those um, bonding experiences, you know, making these rich, deep familial connections that will, that, that, that is the stuff of life, yeah. Karen. 
you know, I'm, an, I'm a nurse as well. I've been with many people at the point of death. And, you know, I've never heard anyone say to me at the point of death, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. Yeah, when you bring a baby into your world, you're opening up a, a huge, rich area of relationships. It's not just about looking forward to taking them on day trips and hoping they get into a routine soon. There is so much more about it. Every minute of every day you're in that relationship. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. And I've, you know, I've got five uh, biological children, an adopted child, and all my children are getting getting older. What I get in those relationships as they get older, I, it's unquantifiable, you know, that, that the richness there. Now, what else do dads need to know? I do tend to talk about certainly the mother's skin-to-skin contact early on being primary and absolutely very important. But that there is some benefit in them having skin-to-skin contact. And that's something they all want to do. Yeah, they do. But I, I kind of de-emphasize it at the point yeah. of birth and earlier. Because, God, you know, the baby doesn't need your skin contact now. Early on, when the baby's just born, the baby's is, is better off snuggled against mum. When we talk about stimulation of the breast, stimulating supply, I think that's quite an important thing to know i have had colleagues in the past that recommend nipple shields <laughs> and the reason, the reason i'm laughing is i think we're going to have some differences of opinion uh, about nipple shields i'm not sure well me I, I i think there's no place for nipple shields in the management of uh breastfeeding ever, ever. and I, I, the reason <laughs> that sounds so absolute it does mark i'm going to tell you now <laughs> i would have given up breastfeeding at about two weeks if I hadn't had nipple shields. I know that this is never about the individual supporter's experience, but it that's where I'm coming from to start with on nipple shields. I can't throw them out. No, I get that. My, my issue is with is in the context of physiology. You know, if you put a layer of plastic between the baby's mouth and the breast, you reduce stimulation to the breast, you reduce supply over time if nipple shields become staple. And you see, nipple shields potentially are covering up a positioning issue. Yes. And and if the support is there for positioning and being with a woman and giving her the support, hands-off support, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, being a male midwife, I would never touch a woman's no, breast. No, nobody should ever touch a woman's breast. You know, a woman has the innate ability to breastfeed. Any hands from the outside suggests that she needs someone else to do it. And for that reason alone, we should not be doing any touching. So nipple shields as a staple as being used regularly, for me, is masking issues around positioning. Because if positioning is working uh, well, there shouldn't really be chronic uh, exterior trauma. Yeah. So in an ideal world, there should be no need for nipple shields. Unfortunately, not every woman has access to the skilled help. Absolutely. And as a short-term measure to overcome an obstacle, I can see how they might be beneficial. But from a teaching point of view and being principle-based, I would say no place for them. The other thing I would say is that there are anecdotal reports of people using nipple shields in the long term and still continuing to breastfeed for an impressive amount of time. And they just wouldn't have made it. I think it would be naive of us to, to assume that reducing stimulation would reduce supply to the point where the baby would be malnourished and fail to yeah. thrive. I think life has a, has a way of, of finding a, a way. I absolutely agree with all of the principles that you're, you're saying, but I would love a world where they weren't needed. 
we're back to Western culture, aren't we? Within other cultures and within our culture in days gone by, wise women who have breastfed their children are around in extended families. Women are surrounded by breastfeeding women and see it as something that is just natural and normal. You know, my daughters, my wife breastfed all our children. And um, so my girls were surrounded by that and, and all three of them are breastfed. So, and that's got very little to do with me and everything to do with what they observe. Yes, the fact that they've grown up in a culture, in a family culture where breastfeeding is just normal. Just returning us back to the nipple shield slightly, I don't think they should be dished out routinely. I wince a little bit in some antenatal sessions when people say, and what do we need? And that's on their kind of things I have to buy list. Because I really don't think these are routine options. They are the thing that you do if the alternative is to stop. Absolutely not. From the point of view of principle, I think we're both in in the same place. Neither of us would want nipple shields on a bag for hospital list. But, but both of us would acknowledge that a nipple shield might get a woman in the absence of the kind of support that she needs around positioning. Usually by the time her nipples are sore, you know, the nipple shield is probably required if she's going to carry on breastfeeding. And I think we've come to that conclusion in our discussion. I've pushed you towards that conclusion. 20 odd years on and off of being around breastfeeding women. You know, I've seen nipple shields used to good effect in the short term, but it's always because because the nipples have become traumatised because the support wasn't there early on. You know, in this uh, resource I'm going to put together, aimed at men, uh, are going to be pictures of, of babies at the breast, looking over the shoulder of a woman feeding, so that a man can see a baby that's attached. That's a good perspective, yes. Because then it gives him this, uh, again, uh, referencing experience that he can use to notice when a baby's attached well. Some people are quite visual learners as well. Often when I've got a woman in a drop-in group, she finds a position that that is a a pain-free, comfortable feed. And um, we use her phone to take a photograph so that she can show her partner to help her replicate it. Because I hate the thought that you can manage it in the drop-in and then you get home and you're like, well, what did I do? All of us are using visual references uh, outside of awareness all of the time. You, You wouldn't find your way home if you didn't. And it's happening outside of consciousness. You know, pe- people are using images to compare. You know, I learned about blood loss at birth, how to estimate blood loss at birth, because a, a lecturer of mine got some viscous, a litre of viscous fluid, dyed it red and chucked it on a bed and said, there you go, there's a litre of viscous uh, blood-like fluid on the bed. With this resource, we'll have lots of visual examples, video footage of feeding when it's going well. Being realistic, because, you know, people need preparation for those times that are going to be challenging. When a baby's feeding very, very regularly through through the night, you know, they need an understanding that that's inverted commas, physiological and normal. A man needs to know she's going to need support through that time. Um, there's probably going to need some policing around visiting and all that kind of stuff. You know, I think that's quite important, fluid intake. The other thing I, I say to men, baby's nappies are almost as good as having a clear perspex thing on... On the side of a kettle where the little um, ball yeah. floats up when you fill it with water. If there was a god, every woman would have <laughs> one of them. Pictures of the transition of the nappy in terms of colour and constituency so that a man, and a woman for that matter, can look at a seedy yellow nappy and go, rock on. Yeah. Rock on. And a green nappy, you know, and go, hold on a minute, is, is, is my partner on antibiotics? 
the whole green nappy thing. Oh, yeah. I bet you got an opinion on I that. I like Karen. Jack Newman's opinion on that. What does he say? Wear sunglasses while you're doing the change. <laughs> I like that. And, you know, I'm sure both of us have a similar opinion about, mmm, watch your spicy food. <laughs> I wonder whether in India every breastfeeding mother is eating fish fingers. <laughs> and other bland food. Yeah, I, people talk a lot of rubbish, don't they? The key thing for, for a man to know, I think, is yellow seedy stool being a fantastic sign that feeding's going yeah. well and that the green stool is a sign that you know that we we need to be aware of what's going on it doesn't necessarily mean there's a problem we consider a baby's muscle tone temperature of the baby's body and color because all those things point to a well baby if a green nappy is happening in the absence of any other sign that there's a problem you know it's not to be worried about but there are some things that we can consider. What would some of those things be, Karen? I think I would look at it in context. How is this baby? How are they feeding? You know, what, what a feed itself is actually like. I'd look at how often the baby's feeding. And um, yes, whether the mum's been on antibiotics. The general context, see how things are going. I'd go a lot on the mother's instinct. How do you think your baby is? And if she's, well, she seems fine. Just got these, these funny looking nappies every now and then. And hopefully build her confidence to be able to say well if she seems fine she probably is fine absolutely you know you know the whole idea of baby's movements when the baby's inside one of the things i would say to women when i was a community midwife every time i saw them was what what the baby's movements like i would say to them that you are the monitor for the baby's well-being because the movements are really the only indicator we have of how well the baby's doing and uh, i would always respond to that intuitive knowing that a woman had that something wasn't yeah. right even if she didn't perceive that there are any changes because that's the function of the unconscious mind. Have you ever met someone, Karen, and you know immediately that you don't like them? <laughs> yes, I think so. But I'm often wrong. <laughs> but what's going on in that kind of split second? I'll tell you what's going on. Your unconscious mind is taking every person you've ever met, doing a composite and then giving you a signal in consciousness that there's something here that you need to be aware of. You know, it's an evolutionary function, I would argue. And your unconscious mind that can process more information than your conscious mind is filtering everything and then giving you a signal in consciousness, which is mm, not sure. You, you get a sense of it, right? Same thing is happening in pregnancy for a woman. She's used to being with her body. The unconscious mind is monitoring that all the time. And then when something changes, even though she's not consciously aware of it, the unconscious mind sends a signal. And the same thing happens with baby's well-being afterwards. You know, the mother being around the baby 24-7, holding the baby, intuitively feeling the muscle tone, intuitively picking up on, on colour of the baby and response of the baby. They pick up the baby one day, the unconscious mind is going, hold on a minute, this isn't right. A signal is given. It's definitely important to take those concerns seriously. Absolutely. Well, they're absolute for me. A woman's um, innate ability to birth and parent inverted commas breastfeed um it's an inside out phenomena you know that we can support and facilitate in terms of uh, adding understandings about skills and principles but uh, a woman has all of that power are there any other basic principles wearing a, a well-fitted support good bra use of pads although you know i used to suggest that women buy nipple shells the little drip trays yeah, I think that's kind of useful because all of that insensible loss that you get across the pad can then be, yeah. you know, can be frozen for later use. For some women, but what what if you've got women who aren't leaking a lot and then 
think, well, why aren't I? Where's my milk? I've been led to expect that there would be a great deal of leakage that I would be able to freeze. Yeah. No, I get that. Yeah. And I'm thinking now back what prompted me to recommend them. Was it the fact that a woman was losing a lot of milk in between and therefore a good idea to get some of these nipple shells? But I take your point. I take your point. If I was going to suggest something like that, it would be postnatally in the context of a mum who is yeah. quite clearly got plenty of milk to spare. Yeah. No, rock and roll. I get that. My daughter used them. Of course, she forgot and bent down on her, <laughs> her face full of breast milk. <laughs> Do you have any core things that you communicate about use of pump? I noticed that in your profile you you I'm deal a, with pumps. an agent. It's my superpower. I'm a breast pump agent. Excellent. <laughs> yes, I've got two of the big hospital-style double electric pumps that I rent out. They're out almost constantly. There's a real need for it. It's usually for people who have serious need to be expressing a lot of milk so babies in special care or severely tongue-tied and waiting for a division that kind of extreme need it's not your sort of every now and then relieving engorgement thing but yeah antenatally I do talk about expressing because for one thing people want to know but also there's a whole nother raft of uh, myths to debunk about the scenario of the mother expressing so that the partner can give a nighttime mm. bottle. And you need to talk about how that's going to impact on the early weeks of breastfeeding. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I use expressing as a way of discovering supply and demand as well. That's cool. And in terms of engorgement, you wouldn't you wouldn't be recommending a breast pump, would you? Only if it was engorgement because the baby wasn't able to latch on or something because of their tongue tie or that kind of thing. So, yes, it, ideally, first response, feed the baby. Or hand express. Yeah. Cool. We're not so far away from each other, Karen. I think that we've got vastly different backgrounds, but the direction we're looking in is the same. Yeah. Karen, you know, when I first started as a, as a midwife, we used to do time feeds. So you'd feed, you know, 10 minutes on one side, 10 minutes on the other. And um, I kind of noticed that you did get quite a lot of um, green stalls if you were swapping from one breast to the other before the baby had finished feeding on one. Can you comment on that? That's overriding the baby's appetite control the baby's own innate ability to take on what they need and because of the changing fat content during a feed um, and the reason I don't like the terms full milk and hind milk are because it makes it sound like two discrete substances and I like to describe it as the milk just becoming increasingly fatty as more fat particles are dislodged from the milk ducts during the feed and if you allow the baby to feed for as long as they want to whenever they want to then over 24 hours they will take in the fat they need. That was very clear. The stuff that you speak about resonates with me intuitively. That's good to know. Sorry, that neatly wraps up a lot of things that we said we wanted to talk about. I think think. we've done very well. Well, Karen, we've uh, we've certainly covered the territory this morning. Finally, today we've got an interview with doula and breastfeeding counsellor Maddie McMahon. Uh, Maddie is is based in Cambridge and is also a doula trainer and mentor. Her website thebirthhub.co.uk is a great resource all about childbirth, pregnancy and infant feeding. Now, Karen interviewed Maddie uh, to get her perspective on breastfeeding generally and uh, some hot topics uh, uh, like tongue tie and also to find out about the book that she has in the pipeline for later this year. Let's hear from Maddie uh, being interviewed by uh, Karen. 
This week for Sprogcast, we've got an interview with Maddie McMahon, who is a Cambridge-based doula, doula trainer and breastfeeding counsellor for the Association of Breastfeeding Mothers. Um, Maddie's very kindly agreed to be our very first interviewee. So we've got some questions for her and we're going to see how it goes because I am a novice at this, as I think she might be. Or have you been on the radio, Maddie? I have been on the radio a few times. You have? So you, you're yes. better at this than I am, hopefully, already, which is good. It's good <laughs> that one of us that. knows what we're doing. Okay, <laughs> so um, welcome. Thank you for agreeing to talk to us this morning. Thank you for having me. So, Maddie, do you want to just tell me, first of all, what do you do? I'm a birth and postnatal doula, uh, and I also run a course for women who want to become doulas. Um, and I'm also a mentor, so I, I work with Doula UK to uh, look after new doulas when they begin their journey. Um, and as you said, I'm also a breastfeeding counsellor with the Association of Breastfeeding Mothers. I run a weekly drop-in to support breastfeeding mothers in the Cambridge area and uh, work on the National Helpline for time, from time to time too. So you're a very busy woman. <laughs> yes, it does add up yes yes like most people working in this area I think we get very committed so how did you get into doing this well I think like lots of us you get to a crossroad in your life um, and lots of things come together to make you reassess uh, the direction that you've been going in and whether it's actually fulfilling you and what you really want out of life um, and I'd been running a business and working very hard um, and kind of missed a lot of my first baby's babyhood, so to speak. And then when I was pregnant, second time round, I think it was a kind of, you know, bit of a crisis, really. Um, certainly, it felt like a crossroads. And I, I realized that I really needed to reassess things because, A, I wanted to do something that felt much more fulfilling, something that I felt could really add to the sum of human happiness a bit more than what I had been doing. Um, and B gave me more time with the kids. Um, and so it was just really a chance conversation in the playground with somebody who said, oh, you know, you should be a doula, it would suit you. And I had no idea what it was. So a bit of a Googling later and within days I'd found a local doula, the only one at the time, because this is going back to 2003 and there really weren't very many of us around at the time, had coffee with her and that just led to me being on a course within weeks with, you know, my newborn baby in my arms and um, I was travelling to London to find out what it meant to be a doula. Wow, so a, quite a big turnaround from what you were doing before. Yeah, yes. I was running a, a small publishing company with my husband um, so very stressful um, and, uh, yeah, not exactly fulfilling in any spiritual level whatsoever. And this, I get the impression very much, this is spiritually fulfilling. Absolutely, yes. Uh, All-consuming in, in that respect, I think, um, to the extent I think most doulas will say that, um, you know, they have to be careful with their work-life balance. You know, lots of us get into this to have a better work-life balance, but it doesn't always work. And certainly the, the passion and the commitment can mean that you can be a, you know, you can bore the pants off your family sometimes. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> um, I love Naomi Stadlin's description of herself being immersed in motherhood. Yes, 
Yes. That's what I feel like. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. It is just like that. Or like um, in that new La Leche League book, Sweet Sleep, where they talk about melting into motherhood. Oh, yes. Absolutely love that phrase. Isn't that a marvellous book? Mm, it is. I love it. Okay, so I'm going to focus us on the breastfeeding because our first episode of Sprogcast is very much about breastfeeding. Mark yeah. and I have had a discussion um, about various points, which we'll refer yeah. back to in a minute. Um, but can you tell me more about your work in, in that area? The breastfeeding counselling is is obviously all tied up with the doula ring, but going right back to the beginning of my story, it was, it was very, very separate. It was a, a real um, epiphany that I'd had so much trouble breastfeeding my first baby. Um, and then when I had my second, I had um, so lucky that my community midwife was also a IBCLC. Um, and she just came round and, and I re- remember realising, my goodness, what a tiny little adjustment she made to the position of my baby and what an immense difference in how it feels. And that just sparked a, an enormous interest and passion in me. So um, I kind of began my breastfeeding counselling training alongside my doodling right from the beginning. Um, started with Breastfeeding Network um, and qualified with them in about 2005, I think. Um, for lots of reasons, about three years ago, I moved to the Association of Breastfeeding Mothers um, and set up a, a, a group here in Cambridge in 2007. I run that group alongside La Leche League and NCT, which um, I find it just incredibly exciting that we've formed this uh, charitable organisation called Cambridge Breastfeeding Alliance um, that does encompass three of the four breastfeeding charities and that feels great to be bringing the, the organisations closer together and working mm. in harmony. It's wonderful. That's really positive, isn't it, to be able to have, because we, I think within um, the, the area where we work, we do tend to think of the organisations as almost having slightly different philosophies and not always um, working together nicely. But of course we can. We all want the same yes. thing at the end of the day. Exactly. Of course we have similar philosophies. Yes, as you say, yeah. it's all about... Um, supporting the breastfeeding diet, isn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think that there are slight differences in how where we are on the scale between baby-centred and mother-centred. Mm-hmm. Each one of us doing the work puts ourselves where we feel comfortable. Yeah. Um, so you recently campaigned to keep your local drop-in open, I think. Yes. And how's that yes. going? Well, uh, <laughs> sometimes it feels like wading through treacle. Um, but we're getting there. We, as as I said, we've you know we're in the process of forming a, a charitable incorporated organisation. Um, that means that we'll be eligible to um, apply for much more funding. We were recently successful in getting some funding from a um, a competition with Engage Mutual, which is an insurance company, and they put aside a million pounds each year for community projects. Um, and it's on a voting system. So we had to mobilise social media quite amazingly to um, drum up votes. Um, and we won £5,000 in that competition. So we're you know, now safe for a few months. It means that yeah. we can carry on making sure that the people, you know, the breastfeeding counsellors have their expenses covered and that we've got leaflets 
to give away to the mothers so that they can take some reading material away from them with them from the group and that we can give them tea and coffee and you know all the the running costs of a community group will be covered at least for a while that's really good to to just have your future secured even for the short term yes yes exactly so next step really is to apply for an awards for all um with the lottery funding um, and see where that takes us yeah well good luck with that so i'm going to ask you about your website because uh-huh. it's one of my go-to resources on tongue tie you've got so much stuff there um do you want to just say your url uh yes it's thebirthhub.co.uk it's full of stories and resources just really useful information good pictures of tongue tie that's something i find very helpful why is that such a big area of your work it came out of my breastfeeding counselling, really, and, you know, from supporting mothers as a postnatal doula and realising very early on that um, I hadn't been really trained very much in the possible implications of tongue tie when I was doing my breastfeeding counselling training. And there just didn't seem to be that much information out there. I really knew nothing at all. So I went on a learning journey. And the more I learned, the more I realized that the resources out there for mothers um, were really scant. Um, And what seemed to be the most lacking was mothers being able to support each other with their own stories. And as a doula, I'd been learning that, you know, women support each other with their stories and we learn from each other in that way that the narrative is a very sort of female way of learning. So I began to collect tongue-tied stories and every time I supported a mother who had a tongue-tied baby, then she, I asked her to write her story up and I put out a plea on social media and I got a lot that way. And I just see myself as a curator really, that it's a place for mothers to come and hopefully read other women's stories and think ah okay well that my baby's like that or that's how I feel I'm not crazy maybe I will you know carry on trying to see if I can find someone who's got the solution for me Hmm. one of the things that stuck with me supporting a mother with tongue tie was the point at which I looked at the baby's mouth and said I think your baby might have a tongue tie explained the implications of that and she looked at me and said so it's not my fault yeah isn't that the default position for mothers mm, yeah you know, definitely we blame ourselves and feel guilty for absolutely everything and and if we can take some of that burden off a mother's shoulders by showing her that actually no this is just you know the way her deck of cards has fallen and it's not her fault um, and that you know there's potentially something that can be done about it um, then that's hugely liberating so I'm using your website in the way you intended by passing it to other mums. Good, good. I'm glad to hear that. Yes. So what do you think about the recent campaign for Tongue Tie to be a routine check at birth? Um, that's a really interesting question. Thank you for putting me on the spot with that one, Karen. I would say that probably it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, and I think it's one of the most interesting things about those of us who who hang around in the tongue-tie world because we're constantly talking about, you know, that's a piece of string question and it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, if you if you check every baby at birth, then A, who is doing the checking? 
Do they know what they're looking for? Do they have a broad understanding of how tongue function can affect breastfeeding? Are you going to get a good picture on day one as how this tongue and this mother are going to go together, how this jigsaw puzzle is going to work and whether that's going to be easy or more challenging for the both of them. I'm not sure at the moment that we've got any hope of making sure that every single midwife and paediatrician in the whole of the NHS has that kind of depth of understanding and skill. It would have to be a lactation consultant. And of course, we don't have many of those working within the NHS, certainly not enough to check every single of the, what, nearly 700,000 annual births in the UK. So, you know, I think there's, you know, there's a, an issue about training and staff skill. I, I also wonder about, you know, the information that we're giving parents as well, because as a birth doula, what I realise is that actually an enormous percentage of extremely newborn babies, their tongues can look and feel rather tethered. I'm still right at the beginning of my learning journey about that because two or three days later, their tongue function can be loads better. So I wonder how useful it is to check at birth anyway. You and I both know that you can look at a tongue that looks like it's got the worst function ever, put it on this mother, and everything flows beautifully, and no one's in pain, and everyone's, you know, putting on weight who needs to put on weight, and everyone's happy. It really is a little bit more complicated than just ticking a box. That's right. Then the risk is that there are frenulums being divided that don't need to be. Um, and there are people out there who believe that you know there are lots of frenulums being divided already that don't need to be. So we certainly don't need to be giving those people more fuel to be campaigning against tongue tie. They would have, I think, lots of evidence to suggest that we're just crazy people if we started dividing at birth. The potential for just doing procedures that aren't necessary, putting parents through um, through that small trauma of taking their baby to have the procedure done and it's slightly invasive and it doesn't necessarily improve things. So then what happens to the mother who still has difficulty breastfeeding even though she's been sent for a routine tongue tie division? So what, what's the best, how can we best support families of babies with tongue tie? I think that it's community really, that the community support. You know, these days women stay so, uh, you know, little time in hospital anyway that actually most of the time it's midwives and breastfeeding counsellors and lactation consultants in the community who are picking up problems. And so that support needs to be skilled and readily available across the country. And we all need to be working together and and talking to each other so that there's continuity um, of, of information that's being given out to mothers and that we're all learning from each other and that crucially that we could admit to parents that there is there's stuff we don't know and that we don't know whether division is going to make a difference 
we don't you know we don't know why some babies breastfeed beautifully after division and some takes a, a while to get there and some never do there are so many unknowns so we've got to be honest with parents but we've got to have that ongoing and skilled support and emotional support and that's you know that's where doulas come in as well and the parents I see being beautifully supported or that have a team around them they've got that emotional support from their postnatal doula they've got skilled and sensitive breastfeeding support and possible tongue-tie division from their lactation consultant um, and they've got breastfeeding drop-ins to go to as well for positioning and attachment support after division so yeah that's that's how I see it working the most beautifully that's what we're all aiming for mm. It's just frustrating sometimes that there are these little gaps in the line. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it just all falls apart completely because women are living in a geographical area that where they have absolutely nothing or they've got to get in the car and drive for hours. And it seems extremely unfair to me that, A, you know, there are women who have no support around them in their in their own community and, B, that volunteers are, are so often picking up the pieces. Yes, well, that that's a real bugbear for me. So do you have a favourite breastfeeding myth that you take pleasure in debunking? I wouldn't say favourite. I think the one that bogs me down the most is it's normal for it to hurt in the early days. And that one has layers and layers and layers to peel off before we get to it, close to any kind of universal truth. And it really does interest me because when you ask that question on, say, Facebook, you could get a 100 replies and many, many, many of them will say, well, nothing was wrong with my positioning and attachment. Nothing was wrong with my breastfeeding. My nipples just hurt for three days, three weeks, six weeks, two months, What you know, whatever arbitrary number. So it's really interesting trying to get to a place where we're all on the same page about pain and what that means and what it looks like for individual women and whether nature intends us to have sore nipples when we first have a baby. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really interesting point. Um, I'm going to read you a quote from a book that I have on my desk. Right. It says, I do firmly believe that not all women can breastfeed, even given expert help, as our bodies are not perfect and do not always work as well as they should. Hmm. I'm sure you can spot the author. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Are our bodies that imperfect? Of course not. Obviously, we wouldn't have populated the planet quite so successfully if it was common for our bodies to let us down. It's just like birth, isn't it? As a birth doula, I often say to my clients, look, uh, mother nature favours the species. So it's set up a system that works most of the time. But mother nature can be a cruel mum sometimes and she doesn't necessarily favour the individual. So that means that sometimes the the hand of cards that we're dealt can be a bit rubbish. With breastfeeding, you know, you know as well as I do that sometimes our, our own health or uh, tongue tie or the challenges that society throws up in our faces as we're trying to initiate breastfeeding can mean that not all breastfeeding relationships will get to a place where, you know, that the mother 
that was in the mother's goal and that that's that's really sad but unfortunately that's the reality that we're living with as a species and in our society our culture throws up a lot of challenges that maybe wouldn't necessarily be there in nature that's right i I find myself saying that the the kind of ideal environment for breastfeeding just isn't 21st century britain no that's absolutely right i think you know we're we're much more like monkeys who've been bred in captivity you know we we don't really know what's normal for our tribe anymore it's hard for people in the breastfeeding support community to be conveying this message that um that that mother nature favors the species that we generally should be able to do this without that coming across Mm. as either breastfeeding is completely natural and you should all (laughs) be able to do this or um you know that that kind of um, thing that almost alienates anxious mums-to-be and people having difficulties exactly i suppose you know it's about the layers of judgment and misunderstanding that that we've put on breastfeeding for some reason no one kind of bangs on about the guilt of being in a wheelchair you know everybody understands it's not that person's fault and that that person can lead a perfectly wonderful fulfilling life not being able to walk but everyone including the person in the wheelchair would probably agree that it would be nicer to be able to use your legs so it's you know it's the same with breastfeeding you know of course everyone really should be on the same page that um, mother and baby are going to be happier and healthier and have a more fulfilling time if they can breastfeed. But if they need help um, from formula, if they can't fully breastfeed or they can't breastfeed at all, why would there be any judgment applied to that? It would be so nice to just remove the stigma. Yeah. And I feel that removing the stigma from bottle feeding and from breastfeeding would make breastfeeding just generally that little bit more normal, just a boring thing that people yeah. get on and do. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it is, after all, just a you know a way to feed and nurture a baby. It's not a big deal. It's, as I said, it's like walking or breathing air. <laughs> so, Maddie, tell me about your book that you've been writing. Well, I was approached by Susan Last, who is an editor working with Pinto and Martin at the moment, back in the summer. They are planning a series of, I think, 16 books in the Why It Matters series, all in the kind of birth, breastfeeding arena. They asked me to write the Why Doulas Matter book in the series, which will be coming out, um, we hope, in March. And so I was taken aback, I think is probably the best word for it, to be asked, and really didn't know whether I could do it. I suppose I'm like lots of people. I always thought that there might be a book in me before I die, but never really thought that it would happen. And perhaps I needed the deadline of Christmas. (laughs) It was imposed on me to actually make me do it. And it was a very interesting experience writing it at the moment because I've been looking at it so much the last few weeks to try to get it to as finished a point as possible to send off to my editor I'm in a very dark place about it oh. you know just that um, looking at something over and over and thinking about it and waking up in the middle of the night and thinking some more and thinking about all the stuff that you didn't put in it but that you haven't got room for and that perhaps you could have worded something a little better and what are people going to think I suppose you know it's that yeah. exposing yourself that is quite scary it is it's putting yourself right out there yes so at the moment I'm just 
more or less finished until I get the proofs back and try not to think about it. And do you know when it's going to be out? Well, I am told that they are aiming for it to come out on the same day as the Dooley UK conference, which is the 24th of March. I'll, I'll look forward to it. Okay. Thank you. Well, it's been really nice to talk to you, Maddie. And yeah, that was great. Thanks very much. You're very, very welcome, Karen. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. That's pretty much all we've got time for. Uh, this is our first episode of Sprogcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. I've certainly enjoyed hanging out with Karen and talking about some of these things. Um, we haven't got a date for the next one yet, but it won't be long. So it's certainly goodbye from me. And goodbye from me as well. We'll let you know when the next one is going to come out. It'll depend a bit on how long it takes to put this one together. Thanks, Karen. I've enjoyed your company. It's been great, much. Mark. Thank you.